Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. You out of your mind? No, I'm serious. It's Thursday afternoon. You have nothing else to do, really. I mean, got to go home, like maybe cook for Shabbos or I don't know, do something else. What are you all doing Thursday afternoon? Great. That's what I want to hear. Why are you here? I'm serious. Huh? It's cool in here. That's good to know. So as far as you're concerned, you're just here for the weather. Great. I love it. Anyone else? I'm, ser- I'm also quite serious. Like, I like to know. Thank you. Amazing, but that you're going to get more tonight. Oh. <laughs> now, we're, now we're mostly going to focus on the text. Okay. Uh, some of it's going to come up, and then later tonight we're gonna, I'm going to do more Can of a... Pr- Reader's Digest version? A little tiny? Um, for a million dollars? Yeah. Uh-huh. No, uh, we can, let's talk at the end. I, can, I, I mean, a bit of it is going to come up as we go through the text study. Do all of you have it? But in all seriousness, I don't know... Could anyone tell, like, I'm curious, like, yes, we are going to do a text story that's going to be focused on Judaism and on gender. Okay, I will leave the question to the end, and we'll talk, okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start going through these texts. Ideally, we're going to have people read, because you don't want to get bored of my voice. Um, And then, throughout the time, as we go through this, if there's something you don't understand or something that isn't clear, please do feel free to ask. I also could sometimes start talking really fast, my leftover from speaking Yiddish, which is my first language. Um, So if that happens, you can tell me to slow down. Um, And then at the end, we'll take time to do questions about everything. Does someone want to read to me source number one? It's only in English, so nothing to struggle with. Go ahead. I realize that all forms of religion are masks that the divine wears to communicate with us. Behind all religions, there's a reality, and this reality wears whatever clothes it needs to speak to a particular people. Amazing. What is religion? What is Judaism? There's a lot of answers to that, probably more than there are questions. And to every answer, there's 10 more questions. But this approach, this specific text comes from Zalman Shech Shalomi, who is considered the father and founder of Jewish renewal. Um, but it's also very Hasidic, which is that religion, and specifically Judaism, is at its beginning and end grounded in reality. In a very short sentence, the Jewish people are not here to serve Judaism, but Judaism is here to serve the Jewish people. The understanding in Judaism is very strong that first and foremost we are people, and now we gotta understand how do we fit in to the bigger picture of what it means to be human, of what it means to be a a Jewish person, and how religion 
works with us. Now, a lot of people, specifically very uh, traditional people, including my dad, when I came out to him, when his, his first response was, do you think that that, which meant being trans, is okay with being Jewish? A lot of people think that it isn't. But as we're going to go through these texts, you will start realizing that that is quite inaccurate. Now, I do want to make a very early disclaimer that I'm not trying to tell you that these texts mean exactly what I'm trying to tell you they mean. Because, like everything in Judaism, you know, two people, three opinions, with text specifically, we are going to actually literally discuss that part specifically on how it, it, the essence of Judaism is all of us interpreting stuff differently. But one thing that is very clear is that in our, making a statement of saying that Judaism or the Bible only sees two genders is just straight up wrong. It's not a conversation to be had. It just isn't. Judaism talks in different ways of form about many different genders. We'll see later an understanding of where everyone has to be everything, where people could go from one to the other. If one thing is going to be clear, is clear about Judaism and gender is that it isn't clear. Got that? That is one argument that I'm very comfortable making 100%. Everything else, let's start going, see what we have here. There's no right or wrong interpretations to anything. And let's see what we start understanding of what's going on here. So what I'm going to do, and you can see that in what's labeled as source number two, we're going to do, which is a very traditional way of studying Jewish texts, which is kind of like a build-up. We start with biblical texts. We're going to go to Talmudic texts, which are all obviously based on the Bible. We're going to move to Kabbalistic, mystic, and mystic texts, which are in turn mostly based on the Bible and in other um, Jewish teachings. Then finally with Hasidic and contemporary texts. Let's start with the creation story. Okay, the very famous Genesis chapter 1. Without going into the academic conversation, the contradictions between Genesis 1 and 2, which we'll see a bit here. But first, what does the verse say? Does someone want to read to me source number 3? Either in Hebrew or in English or both, whatever you prefer, or any other language you choose. Go ahead, yes. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Not sure what's wrong with the writer of this verse, but I do know if I would write this at any class in college, I would get an F. <laughs> you know, you got to pick. Are you plural or singular? Is that person that was created one person, which is the first part of the verse, which uses singular pronouns or singular in general? And literally, it's not about, yes, we all use the, the Bible might have some things that don't make sense, maybe one chapter to the next, one partial to the other. We might have some contradictions. We're talking here literally within one single verse. Great question. No answer. Moving on. We'll get back to that. Don't worry. Source number four. So just very quickly, um, Genesis 1 is the classic creation story a lot of people know, which is the six-day creation story in the context through which grass and trees are created on Tuesday, on, on the third day. Then we have fish and, and birds on Wednesday. Animals, sorry, I think I missed one part. Animals, I know, are on Thursday or Friday. Anyway, point being, it starts with the grass and trees, fish and birds, animals, 
the human that we just had this verse, which is undecided if that human is one person that is just using masculine pronouns referring to a man, maybe. It could also just be that in biblical Hebrew, the, the default is, is man, and it doesn't necessarily refer to a man. And then, or two, not sure. Then there's Genesis 2, which starts from scratch, and where the structure is quite different. First, there's a man created, only after that there are trees and grass, and only after that the animals, and after that there's the story of the woman being created from the rib. So this is where Genesis 2 comes in. We're at a point where Adam, the first man, is created. There's already grass and trees, which the Bible says he had to pray for. All the animals were already created. The Medrash says he was naming all the animals. And now this is where we are. Does someone want to start reading it? Go ahead. And Hashem said to God, It is not Hashem good God. that the man should be alone. And Hashem God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. And the Hashem God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Hashem God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her unto the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Okay. So first what it's talking about here is this story that I think a lot of people know. It's not good for the person to be alone. Talk something that is classically translated to a rib, though we'll see later that that is far from clear. Um, it just says that God took one of his tzalosof, one of his, usually translated to a rib, and that is how Eve was created. And there's also a very interesting verse, which I'm not going to focus a lot on, but I made it bold because I want you to focus on that. But it doesn't say that when someone, when someone kind of gets married that they are together, but rather they become one flesh, one person physically, which will make a lot more sense later. But comparing this for a second to what we just had in source number three in Genesis 1, I don't get it. Was the first person, this person that I can't really pinpoint if it was created, but it clearly just talks about one creation, both Zachary Nekeva, Barao, Tam, they were both created at the same time together, as opposed to Genesis 3, that has a very different story. Great, I will let you sit on this for a while. Let's move on. We'll get back to it, don't worry. Anyone here who went to yeshiva, not like yeshiva day school, but like hardcore yeshiva, other than rabbi? What would you think would be, hypothetically, if you want to play, let's call, let's call it playing devil's advocate, from a very traditional point of view, what would be in Jewish law against trans people? Can you think of anything? Oversex yeah, cheater. Okay. Is there, but like, is there anything else that you can think of? I will help you there. There isn't. Okay. Not in the Bible, not in Jewish law. It's actually almost weird because if you want to take uh, orthodox halacha, orthodox law and faith value, being that there are actually some things that you can, might be able to use against gay, gay people, which is also inaccurate, but I'm not going to focus on that right now. Um, there almost is, is, there's almost nothing that talks about trans people other than cross-dressing, hypothetically. So I do want to say the disclaimer, trans people aren't cross-dressing. Maybe before they come out, I think I cross-dressed when I was presenting as a male. 
I don't think personally that trans, that trans people are cross-dressing, but hypothetically you want to focus on that. Or if you want to talk about drag queens or anyone that does it for a performance as opposed to for being who they are. Yes, did you want to? Yeah, so I'll just confess my ignorance. Uh, is, is it possible that it's because um, those people were not, I don't know whether it's right phrases, whether they, they didn't appear on the scene, either in public or in private, but were rather hidden? We'll see later that, that, isn't, that, that it existed throughout history. We know that. We know that from, you will find it later. I will show you some texts later that we have in Judaism. It's all over Greek mythology. It's all, you'll find it everywhere. People are always around. Um, so they are focusing on the question. The only thing that we do have, source number five, someone want to read that from Deuteronomy, Devarim. Go ahead. Um, a woman shall not wear that with pertaineth which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For whoever does these things is an abomination unto God. Now, I'm not going to go into the conversation of what abomination really means. There have been some biblical scholars trying to argue that abomination does not mean that something is forbidden, but rather making a cultural statement. I'm not going to focus on that. Simply what it is saying here. It just says that a man is not allowed to wear women's clothes, a woman is not allowed to wear men's clothes, both in Judaism and in Christianity. That has been used for generations to the, what I see as justify hate and intolerance towards trans people. Surprisingly, the other Abrahamic religion um, in Islam actually does have a very positive, um, not to gay people, but does have a very positive um, tradition towards trans people, which is uh, something just to put out there. But what is going on with cross-dressing? And as I've said before, I don't think trans people are cross-dressing, but hypothetically, you want to be a bigot. You don't want to accept trans people. You want to argue, my Bible and my God is telling me that's not okay. Now, I have a big problem with you because the Talmud says that someone who reads the Bible and decides what the halacha, what the law is, and how to live life based on the Bible is destroying the world, quite literally. According to the rabbis, if you open up a, you open up a Torah and you decide, oh, this is what it says, and this is what I'm going to do, you are destroying the world because they always believe that context matters. Judaism, as opposed to other religions without necessarily having to be named, always understood that our religious texts, as much as we could believe that they are sacred, are living, breathing documents. They are not a piece, and, and, and to put it in short, they all understood that a piece of paper doesn't have, is not stronger than humanity, it's not stronger than people, it's not stronger than reality. So context always mattered. So, I could do a whole text study just on this verse alone, which I actually have, and I've done that online. You can find it online. But just very quickly, what is going on here? The Talmud says, and it's the comment that is, that is in there, the Talmud says that what is prohibited is falsifying identity for the purpose of spying on the other sex. The Talmud does something that it does with every biblical commandment, which is that usually they understood there is a reason behind that. And there's a reason behind that. Why is that? And it wasn't just because we're curious why is that, because it also meant there's a reason behind that, and this only applies when that reason applies. So according to the understanding of the rabbis, this only applies when you're doing it because you want to falsify your identity because you want to spy on another sex. And all likely what we're talking here about a gender-segregated society where in order to mingle with the opposite sex, whatever that means, you need to dress up so. Or, I don't know, in today's context, you want to walk into a men's bathroom or a woman's bathroom, you want to do that, for whichever reason. Only if you're doing it for that, it's forbidden. In other words, for any other reason, you're just fine. The great medieval commentator Rashi says, 
that the prohibition is limited to concealing identity for the purpose of adultery. Rashi takes it to the next step. It's only prohibited if you're doing that because you want to commit adultery. So again, a hypothetical situation would be that, uh, I don't know, you are a woman who wants to go meet a man who might be married, and you can't do that by walking in, I don't know, to a men's section of the synagogue, so you dress up as a man in order to be able to talk with that man. Hypothetical situation. If you're doing it because you want to commit adultery. Again, in other words, if you're doing it for any other reason, you're just fine. The Shulchan Aruch, which is in, in Judaism, specifically in Orthodox and Conservative Judaism, kind of the ultimate Jewish law code, notes that cross-dressing is permitted on Purim because its purpose is simcha, celebration and joy, and that it is forbidden if it is for the purpose of fraud. This goes already to the positive part. So in other words, just straight up. If you want to cross-dress because it makes you happy, which in my experience is pretty much everyone who cross-dresses, unless if you want to commit fraud, go for it. In other words, anyone who's trying to make the argument, hey, the Bible says you can't cross-dress. Now, if you're a Christian, then I, I still have stuff to say to you, and we can still talk about it. But if you're Jewish, it's one thing is very clear that someone who cross-dresses, whatever you are, a drag queen or a drag king, and you do that because it's a performance, you do it because today that makes you happy, or for any other reason other than you want to commit fraud, enjoy yourself. In the essence, that also boils down to something else, which I think is important to keep in mind when we talk about Judaism and identity, which is that in Judaism, there is something that overpowers almost anything. Happiness. I know this sounds very Hasidic, but there's literally, in the, the, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, in Devarim, when there's all these terrible curses, read it if you want on your own peril. Like, really, the Bible is really good. You know, like, Yiddish has a very descriptive curses. The Bible is a lot better. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah, I'm not going to go into that. But right after that, it says the reason why you're going to get all these curses, not because you committed adultery, not because you killed, nothing. Because you did not worship God with happiness. That is the ultimate evil. And it goes the other way around as well. There's so much that goes away, so much that you are allowed to do if this is what brings you happiness. Okay. So where we are right now is that the only argument that anyone could ever make why it's gender or cross-dressing or anything like that should be a problem in Judaism is not really an issue and it's out of the window. Okay. Just the last line here. And limiting the prohibition in situations of fraud and deception, the Talmudic and medieval rabbis indicated that cross-dressing in a way that is true to the cross-dresser's identity is permitted. I did that yesterday and it worked really well, so I'm going to do it again. Raise your hand, everyone. Raise your hand. You were there yesterday. No, you cannot answer that. Raise your hand. Okay. If you think Judaism does not recognize more than two genders, put down your hand. If you think Judaism only recognizes two. If you think Judaism only recognizes three, not more than three, put down your hands. If you think Judaism only recognizes four or less, not more than four, put down your hands. If you think Judaism recognizes six genders, keep your hands up. If not, put it down. Great, this is an educated crowd. I love it. Yesterday, we only had one person who knew. So yes, Judaism, and by that I mean Judaism, I don't mean some obscure story that the Talmud might say. I'm talking hundreds of times in the Talmud. Do all of you know what the Talmud is before I talk more? Okay, sixth century rabbinic law code, in case someone. Hundreds of times in the Talmud, they talk about different genders, and they are at least six different genders. 
very possibly more than six, depending on interpretations of different words, but they talk about at least six different genders. Now, we're going to read one of these texts in a minute, but I want us to focus, I'm not going to focus on exactly what these names of gender identities that they mention refers to, because like everything else, it's disputed. It could, there's some of these, there's male and female, there's two more called andro uh, Timtum and Androgynous, which in all likelihood refer to something that someone is born with, so they would be medically called intersex. And then there's two more, Asterisin and Islandus, which are both things that happen to someone during their life, some of them done by people in one way or another. And depending on interpretations, it could be even more than six. Does someone want to read source number six? An androgynous, most likely someone who has both male and female reproductive organs, is similar to men in some ways and to women in other ways. In some ways to both and in some ways to neither. Rabbi Meyer says androgynous is a gender category of its own because the rabbis could not decipher whatever she, he, they is a man or a woman. However, a tum-tum is not so, as at times she, he, they are, is fully male, and sometimes she, he, they is fully female, but we can't tell it. This literally sounds like my gender studies professor in at Columbia University, probably one of the most like liberal progressive universities in the world, in the 21st century, walking into class and being like, hey, listen, you know, some people are sometimes male, sometimes female, maybe both sometimes, maybe none of them. Maybe you're a third gender category on its own. It sounds like a super progressive idea. And maybe it is. But this is a second century text. Not likely to be maybe a bit older. It was codified in the second century. Forget about religion for a second. You're saying these people, who, who, who tried to say maybe these people were not around? Is that you? That was you. This is a second century text that is talking about people being sometimes that, sometimes that. Who knows? Maybe both, maybe none. We, we don't even know what's going on. One thing is very clear. We were around throughout history. And in our case, Judaism recognized it, dealt with it, and mentions it tens of times in the Mishnah and hundreds of times in the Talmud, which also shows that it wasn't just something that was around. It was something that affected day-to-day -day life. Now, I'm not here to tell you that the Talmud is this like, amazing, egalitarian, perfect place. If you want, you will find a lot of misogyny, a lot of sexism, a lot of homophobia. I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to focus on that. But one thing is very clear. The Talmud recognizes both as a reality and as something that is worthy of conversation and recognition in our religion and in our tradition, that they are many different genders. They are people who don't fit into any of the boxes. There are people who move between them and so on. Do you want to ask something? If it's a question, let's wait till the end, yeah. If it's something that you don't understand of what I've said, do it now. If it's a question, let's wait till the end. Great. Let's move, let's jump back for a second to what we had, the, the creation story. Okay, I left you with a lot of questions of what's going on. Here's one great interpretation from the Madrash the rabbinic interpretations of what is going on. Does someone want to read for me source number seven? And God said, let us make Adam in our image, in our shape. said, when Hashem created Adam HaRishon, he was created as both genders. Thus is it, thus is it written, 
Great. Stop there for a second. We will continue in a minute. I just want to. So their understanding of that verse that we have that starts out singular and starts out plural, this rabbi understood that, yes, because we are talking here about one person that is plural. In other words, next time someone is trying to throw the God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve thing at you, you just throw back, I don't know why you're talking about, according to our tradition, the first person was in this act. The first person was Adam and Eve together at some t- the same time which in reality actually means that gender simply didn't exist. Because when you think about really how we define gender, how would you define gender? Do you want to give a try? Who wants to try? How would you define, don't be politically, don't be accurate right now. Just on face value, you see someone and you decide that's a boy or a girl. Why goes, what did you decide? Okay, give me an example. Great. All of these things are defined by someone has something that the other doesn't have, which means the second there is just one person who is everything and nothing, it's ultimately nothing, because there is no gender. So when we want to talk, and we'll see that later in Kabbalistic text, when we want to talk about Judaism, what is the ideal gender? It's the lack thereof. To some, in some interpretations, which I don't have the text of them here, and specifically in Kabbalistic texts, who are actually arguing that as a result of, we don't call it original sin in, in, in Judaism, but of Chet Sadat, that's why gender even came into being. Which, in other words, gender is a punishment. So people that we think are very progressive and just want to be like, stop imposing gender norms on people, in reality, we're just going back to an ideal world, which is the ideal world, before all of these ideas came into, came into being. Do you want to continue reading? Uh, Hashem, when Hashem created Adam Arishon, He created him with two faces, one on each side, when He made Kaba. He split him along the middle, forming two backs. They challenged him, but it is written. And He took one of His ribs. He said to them, Bithrotav doesn't mean rib, it means one of its sides. Similar to that which is said, and to the tzela of the Mishkan, which is translated the side of the Mishkan. Rabkar Kuma said in the name of Rav Benaya, when Hashem created Adam Harishon, He created him as a lifeless mass, able to reach from one end of the earth to the other. Thus is it written, your eyes saw a mass. We'll get back to the last part in a second. But this is a very, and, and to be honest, even from a fully academic, not just a, the Midrash is known to taking stuff out of its just simple understanding. But even in the most, let's go for a second, academic trying to read Biblical Hebrew, so many of the words in Biblical Hebrew that we know what, that we think we know what it means, we only know from context because language is developed. So as much as, yes, Hebrew was constantly, it was never a dead language, like people constantly used it to write and to read, but so much of it evolved. And everyone knows that, even the rabbis do that, and Rashi does that, and academic people do that. When you want to know what a word means, you just look on where else could it mean, what could it mean in context, which is how you study ancient languages. Now, for generations, the word mitzalotav has been translated to a rib, which also comes from the same root. But one of the other places where we have the same word, it refers to a side, not to a rib. In other words, again, because that story of, oh, the woman came from the rib of Adam has been used for generations, specifically in Christianity, to justify sexism. But the rabbis here are coming is like, I don't know what you're talking about. They were both just equal two faces that were split in the middle. 
which also makes sense because to them, when you get in, in we're not going to talk too much about it, but specifically in Kabbalah, where having sex becomes a, a holy action that is something that is ha bringing back the ideal, which is also why when we had in the beginning it said they should be one flesh, because that is the ideal, just be like one person where, I wouldn't even say where there's both genders, but rather where gender is not a thing which also ends up looking back then when we think that and now we want to talk about sexuality, we have the same story. Because if gender is not a thing, then the point is to be with another person to find love and gender is not a thing. In other words, gender doesn't matter and we shouldn't decide what other people can or can do. We'll just read the note here on the top of the third page. The Medrash adds that the first human being formed in God's likeness was an androgynous, an intersexed person. Hence, our tradition teaches that all bodies and genders are created in God's image, whatever we identify as men, women, intersex, or something else. In other words, and I was talking with Rabbi Shvili on the way driving over about that as well. When it says that, God, that we were created in the image of God, it means all of us. And according to the rabbis, it refers to the animals and everything. And according to Hasidic Judaism, literally everything is God. That ultimately means that the second you're trying to put anything on God, whatever it's a gender identity or anything else, you are taking away from it. Because everything is God's image, which also means that God is everything, which actually is just discussed also means that God is nothing. But we're not going to get too philosophical. But ultimately what it means is that any attribute that we want to say which has been used again, using masculine language for God, which we're not going to talk about that necessarily but that, because that was just the default. But trying to say that God is one way or another is inaccurate and according to some, just straight up heresy because it takes away of the concept of every, everything that is out there was created in divine image. Perfect. Source number eight. Let's move on to the Zohar. So if you know what the Zohar is, it's totally fine if you don't. Okay. So the Zohar is, for the lack of another word, the Bible of Jewish mysticism, the Bible of Kabbalah. Traditional Jews, specifically Hasidic Jews, believe that it was written by a Talmudic rabbi, Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai, who, li who lived in the second century. In all likelihood, it was written through a period of hundreds of times. It, at least it was published the first time in the 13th century. So regardless of how you look, it's quite a few hundred years old. And it has become the backbone of many, or many, let's call it non-establishment or new movements in Judaism, wherever it was the Septanian movement or wherever it was the Hasidic movement, or from there pretty much every other, every other uh, progress, every other movement that came to say something different about Judaism in one way or another relied on the Zohar and Kabbalistic teachings a lot. Does anyone want to read source number eight? You can attempt to read the Hebrew if you want, but it's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. So do it at your own peril. Otherwise, we'll do the English. Go ahead. Rabbi Shimon was journeying to that period. And there were with him Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Hayyam. While on the way, they saw Rabbi Pincus coming to meet them. After exchanging greetings, they all sat down under a great shady tree by a hillside. Then Rabbi Shimon said, It is written, and he went on his journeys to the south of Bethel, into the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai. 
It says he went on his journeys instead of on his journey. Why is that? There is a reference not only to his own journey, but also to that of Shekinah, who always went with Abraham. And therefore, we learn that every person needs to be male and female at all times. For the sake of his faith, he ought not to think or imagine that the Shekinah forsakes him in any way. See, it's been said, a man ought always to cleave to his wife, that the Shekinah may always be with him. Yet it is possible to go alone on a journey, and the Shekinah will still be with him. And when doing so, he ought to direct his prayer to the Holy One, that this may be. And in this way, the male and female will always be associated in human before I explain it just a bit, I know it gets a bit intense, let's read the comment below that. In this model, pay, try to pay attention, the individual mystic soul, gendered feminine, first participates in an act of transgender homoerotic mystical fellowship with those of here fellow mystics in order to at once welcome the divine feminine and in some cases entering into an erotic union with her. A lot, of the, a lot of the Kabbalistic teachings are very erotic. And immediately switch gender roles to embody that divine feminine for her congress of the male godhead. This act of psychic double transvestism is abetted by the Kabbalistic trope that casts God and Israel as the two lovers in the Song of Songs, as the two cherubs over the ark, with Israel taking the female role. I know it's a bit intense. That's what Kabbalah is supposed to be. If it's not intense, then what's the point? But the very simple message here is going back to the conversation, are we more, is someone more masculine, is someone more feminine? Is there something that is more ideal than the other? And the ultimate message that we are getting is that no. It's not just that being one or the other is not really an option. You are, we're almost obligated. And if you want to talk, uh, talk about a human nature, a lot of gender theorists believe that everyone, and I think it's a reality, everyone has some masculinity, some femininity. Some people, the masculine part is more pronounced. Some people, the feminine part is more pronounced. And some people are different every day. And some people are different parts in different, uh, different, different parts of their life. But one thing is clear, that from a Kabbalistic, from a Jewish mystic point of view, the ideal is to be able to be all of it at all times. I know it sounds weird. But the biggest reason why it sounds weird is because we have so many made-up notions of what it means to be a boy and a girl. And yes, if being a boy means having short hair and being a girl means having long hair, then you might have a hard time doing both of them at once. But the second you move behind that and you realize that these are simple energies, that the Kabbalists talk a lot about it, we can all have our own understanding of what it means. It's a very different conversation. And it's a conversation that boils down to there is no ideal because the ideal is being all of it at once, which going back to what we discussed in the beginning means, means being none. Is everything clear or am I talking gibberish? Does everyone understand what I'm talking about? If not, you can tell me. Again, if you're gonna, wake, if you're gonna walk out of here right now, which I wouldn't blame you, no, one thing is very clear. Actually, two things. Judaism recognizes many, many different genders and the ability of people of moving in between them. And Judaism recognizes that gender is not a real thing. 
in one way or another. Because the ideal is being both, this also means being none. Because our ideas of gender are only there if we base them on what it's not. We're all adults, right? So I, can, I want to say one other detail. If you think about, when we think about sexuality, it's not just about gender. When we think about sexuality, which gender and sexuality are two different things, just to make sure. And my easiest way to describe it is always gen, um, think about it going into bed with someone, okay? Sexuality is who do you want the other person to be? Gender is who do you want to be? And they don't, they might sometimes interact with each other, but they're far from being the same thing. Um, curious, would another <laughs> way of saying all of this be that our norms of what's male and female is dictated by our society? 1,000%. Yeah, because I was in Peru and Lake Titicaca on an island, and the men all knit all day, and the women did all of the hard labor. And that's what's accepted. Exactly. Hasidic men, specifically rabbinic Hasidic men, wear long coats that look and are made out, sometimes literally made of the same cloth as women's dresses. My dad wears stuff like that. I mean, it looks more like a suit, but it's kind of long and sometimes comes up and has like nice velvet and uses hooks and has flowers on it. But if somebody not in the Hasidic community dressed like that... It would be considered very feminine. They are beckages, as we call it, quotes that my dad wears that I've literally seen celebrities on the Met carpet wearing the same fabric. I'm not joking. Usually it's, it's, it's knitted and made up in a different way. It's all made up. And that is exactly the point that I'm trying to make. Because so much of what we do today is focused on that. And the second you think about that, the question of accepting trans people goes out the window. The question is just like, how do we make sure that everyone in society learns to celebrate everyone? Because this is who we are. And the most important part is I know that a lot of you and a lot of us and me like agree with that on the sense of where we should be as a society, but way too often people still think that, oh, this is not what Judaism thinks. This is not what my religion thinks. And while I honestly couldn't care less how religious any of you are, it's important for you to know that that isn't accurate. And it's important for you to fight back against anyone who's trying to tell you or anyone else that you can't be Jewish and be queer and be trans. But thinking for a second, I want to I wanna use this, thinking about this for sexuality for a second. What are the most sexualized, ob sexualized thing in men? Let's go with anyone who identifies a straight who wants to answer that, a straight woman. Is there anyone who identifies a straight woman in the room or a bi woman who likes men? A penis. A penis. Okay, great. Any straight men in the room who want to answer that question, how you would say what you, what you find most, what are most sexual in a woman? Come on, we're all adults. Breasts. Okay, now both of these, and, and it's the same thing if you go into details, the kind of like uh, facial features and body type that we find, all of it is usually defined by something that the other or so-called opposite gender, which I don't like as a word, doesn't have. Which ultimately means that sexuality all boils down to what we have decided, what it means either physically or by representation, what it means to be male and female. And that applies even to stuff that are so-called biologically for 98% of the population. Believe it or not, up to 2% of the population has some form of intersex. We're not going to go into that right now. But it's the same thing. And, and you use these messages when we talk about sexuality. And it all boils down to the same thing. It's all made up. And there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I'm one talking. I'm literally wearing a dress and makeup. And I'm like trying to tell you what it what is. Because there's nothing wrong. Don't get, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with being feminine. There's nothing wrong with being masculine. What is wrong when you start to decide that this is how every man has to dress, this is how every woman has to dress, and this is how every person has to be attracted to?
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Now, as we dive further into Kabbalistic texts, and I'm, I'm going to do my best not to make it sound too mystic, and we should all like understand what's going on, I want to read this, the next text, which is labeled number nine on the source sheet, and, and I see it a bit as a disclaimer. In the last few decades, Kabbalah has enjoyed an unlikely resurgence, from high-profile celebrities such as Madonna to many New Age seekers, including notably feminist and queer people interested in alternatives to traditional Western religious discourse. And Kabbalah offer delivers feminine God language, which is the Shekhinah that we spoke about before, experiential mysticism, and mystic esoteric, esoteric, whatever. English is my fourth language. Don't blame me for not being able to read it. And a richer notion of eros than one typically finds in mainline synagogues or churches. Is it possibly to attempt a queer reading of Kabbalistic text and symbolism that are at once honest with the text and yet of use to a contemporary queer theology? There's no answer to that question. But it's just a question to keep in mind. As I mentioned at the beginning, am I really trying to tell you this exactly what these texts mean? I don't know. We're going to have some texts in a minute that are going to be extremely homophobic. Again, it's important to keep that in context. And most importantly, it's important to realize that they are, they are notions, they are ideas that we can take away from it, even if we don't agree with everything and even if we don't understand everything that it's saying. Talking about that, talking about interpreting stuff. One of the first times I did a very similar curriculum of a tech study, someone stood up. It was at a, at a what we would call a partnership orthodox synagogue, where it's like orthodox, but they're trying to be a bit more welcoming to women. And someone stood up and was telling me, this is not the real interpretation of these texts. You are a heretic. You're taking it out of what it really means. How dare you? So ever since, in order to prevent that question, I added an additional text from the Zohar, which will make you understand that this is what it means to study Jewish text, to find your own thing. I would just leave it myself. And it's source number 10. And from there, I'm not going to go into all the details and the context, the Sanhedrin, which is, was used to be kind of the Jewish equivalency of a Supreme Court, knew 70 languages, which they are the 70 interpretations of the Torah. Because there are 70 languages from the side of the evil kingdom, and all of them are separate, unrelated languages. That is why it is written from these, the maritime nations split up in their lands to their languages. All of these 70 languages are in separation from each other. In other words, very quickly, what this is saying is that in, out in the world, there are different languages, different understanding, and they're all separated from each other. And some of them might only have one interpretation and one interpretation. They don't go together. However, in the Torah, there are 70 faces to the Torah, to Torah study, in a single language. Shivim panim le Torah is used by rabbis throughout generations to say 70 doesn't mean necessarily 70. They also say there are 70 nations and 70 languages, and there's a lot more than that. It's, it's, a, it's a reference to there are so many, almost endless. There are so many different interpretations and endless interpretations of the Torah. And at the end of the day, they're all boiled down to one single language. They're all the same. In other words, there's another place in the Talmud where the Talmud says that, um, um, Moshe, that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu went up in Mount Sinai and saw God was sitting and, and, and knitting crowns on top of the letters of the Torah, something like that. 
And Moshe asked God, what are these, what are these crowns? And he told them there will, be a student of, there will be a student of the Torah in thousands of years. His name is going to be Rabbi Akiva. And he is going to make all of these pshetlich, as we say in Yiddish, all of these speeches and all of these sermons based on the, on, the, on the crowns that are on the words of the Torah. And God told them, you should know every interpretation that every student till the end of time will come up on, will, will say on the Torah is the word of the living God. It's true. Now, take that story however you want to take it. I personally think it's a metaphor, but it doesn't matter. Because the point being that Judaism always understood that everything, every text is up for interpretation, and every interpretation is valid, and they're all part of the Torah. They're all part of our tradition. So now we can move on, and hopefully none of you will scream that I'm a heretic. The next text, I'm going to skip some parts of it quite intentionally. And if you read it on your own, that's fine. Because I want to focus. I don't want to get distracted. I want to focus on the concept that they're going to talk about without the very not positive ideas of how these things happen. Start with source 11. Sometimes a man may reincarnate into the body of a woman. Stop there for a second. Again, sometimes a man may reincarnate into the body of a woman. Put this into 21st century text. Sometimes a man is in the body of a woman. And the same the other way around. I don't want to give away the whole story because I want you all to buy my book, which is coming out in, two, in a few weeks. But I talk about this. I found this, these texts when I was 15 years old. And I was sitting in my yeshiva. It was a Friday morning at 4 in the morning. I will always remember it. And for me, this was the first time in my life when I was 15, that I read anything that remotely told me that what I'm feeling is real. You are going to run out of time. So I'm going to skip the rest of these texts. Um, very quickly, it talks about, it, go, it goes into all these details of, of how souls are created and how people could have a soul that is masculine, that, that a man could have a soul that is masculine, a woman could have a soul that is a man can have a soul that's feminine, a woman can have a soul that is masculine, and how there could also be souls that have different features in them, and you can be a full soul, and then you can have an Ebor or a Nitzas or a Spark that could be a different gender. Not going to go into that. We are going to run out of time, but that is the... I think the, the bold part is enough to give you a message. And again, we can look on this from a Jewish perspective, and in addition, we can look on this from a... Six, this is a 16th century text. The next one is, I think, a bit more fun and exciting. So it's number 12, 17th century. And it comes from a book called Magid Sharim, which means Righteous Preacher. It's a less known book written by Rabbi Yosef Karo. Rabbi Yosef Karo is the same person who wrote the Shulchan Aruch. He wrote the Jewish law code, like literally wrote the book on Jewish law, which is considered until today the ultimate guide. But he was also a mystic. And he lived in Svat uh, back in the time. And he actually was studying with the students of Adari, Rabbi Isaac Floria, who's considered the father of modern Kabbalah. Um, and these are conversations. In this book, he has conversations where he's talking with a preacher. He never says who that preacher was. I was told as a child that that preacher was an angel. I think it was just a friend of his. We don't know. Just a preacher that he was studying. Every Friday night, every Shabbat, he writes in his kind of what looks more like a journal that turned into a safer, turned into a book, the conversations that he had with that preacher. Does someone want to start reading source number 12? Go ahead. 
I have already revealed to you last Shabbat concerning your first two wives. Now I have come to reveal to you the secret of your third wife. You should know that this woman was in the past a proper male Torah scholar. However, he was stingy with his money and would not give charity. He was also stingy with his wisdom and would not teach others. He was therefore punished that his soul migrated into a woman measure for measure. Told you so. But here's the one thing, though, that I should point out. In, in Kabbalistic texts, the word that is used, which is ne'enash, which is translated as the punishment, is not a negative thing, actually. It's to some extent sometimes even positive, like there's this understanding in Kabbalah that some people are so bad that they wouldn't even get, an, they wouldn't even get punished. Again, punished is a wrong word, wrong translation. They wouldn't even get an onesh. Because the way they see an onesh, the way they see what we consider as punishment, more as cause and effect, and kind of a second chance to make up for what you did. So in a Kabbalistic in context, what this is ultimately saying is that they under, that, and again, we put that into a social context of the time, they were like, you were a man, and to use modern language, you had toxic masculinity, and you didn't want to share it with anyone. So you're going to reincarnate into a woman, and hopefully, because, again, of society at the time, women tend to be more giving. So it's not, it's not punishment in the, in the conventional sense of we think punishment today as a, like more of a revenge type. It's more of a cause and effect and almost, it's a, it is legitimately a good thing. There's all these stories in the Zohar of people who were so bad that they didn't even get the opportunity to be punished, which ultimately means not really punished as much as a second chance to make up for what you did. But yeah, I mean, I'm not denying there are some things there that are quite problematic. Continue. Therefore, his soul was incarnated into a female who is constantly receiving and needs someone to bequeath to her. Therefore, you see that she does abundant charity and loves you very much because you work to spread Torah and toil in writing books to teach others because these, these things bring about the rectification of her soul. She therefore loves you. It is because she has the soul of a male that you have not had children from her, because a male and another male cannot produce offspring. If you shall point out that she has children from her first husband, this is because the first husband has the spark of a female soul within him. Okay. And I know it's a lot, but I think this is taking the whole conversation that we've had to a next level. Because one of the things that people could say sometimes after reading this is like, yeah, okay, great ideas, but they're not real. They don't translate to reality. What this is, what this is telling us, and we'll see that later again, is that it isn't so. And when people have a different soul, or again, if you want to use 21st century um, lingo, people's different identities, because the soul is who a person is. Doesn't add up with who the body, body is. It has physical ramifications. And here they talk about birth because Kabbalists believe that in order to give birth, it's like a part of the soul of the parents goes into the child. Or if you look at it from a scientific and health point of view, where it's a reality. If you live in a body or that, that you don't feel like it's yours, you can't live a full life. And to me personally, you can all take away whatever you want from this, but to me personally, the strongest message is, again, this is a conversation that someone is having in the, 13, in, in, the, in the 17th century, not about some hypothetical idea. They're talking about his third wife, and we know historically that he actually had three wives. They're talking about a physical person that existed. And 
I, I didn't find any historical records of that, but if I'm gonna go on a gamble, I'm gonna suggest that his third wife wasn't the most feminine woman. I don't know, it could be totally wrong, but I get that feeling that she was that, that, that there was some way that they needed to justify what is going on there, which again talks to the fact that these were real people that were living around them, that they had to make sense of what is going on. Great. We are going to run out of time very fast. I'm going to try to um, push along. Now let's talk about Hasidic texts. As you might all know, I am totally biased, and as much as I might not want to be biased, I literally can't. It's like this Hasidic blood flowing in here, not quite literally. Um, but I do think that Hasidic, Hasidic texts, not contemporary Hasidic Judaism, forget everything you know about Hasidic Judaism today. I think I said that yesterday. Um, also that I think Hasidic Judaism today has as much with Hasidic Judaism of the Baal Shem Tov or of the 18th and 19th century as Christianity has with Judaism, where, you know, has some leftovers, but it's not, it's not the same thing. Hasidic Judaism, when it was founded, was literally the polar opposite of what it is today, where it's this like rigid and like don't change. One of, the, one of the biggest things that the Baal Shem Tov wanted to rip out was the like extremely like legalistic identity of Judaism leading up to the founding of Hasidic Judaism, where everything was following the law to the letter and like focused just on studying. And he came like, calm down. He used to say, there's a saying from the Baal Shem Tov where he said that someone could sit in, in, in synagogue and study the whole day and then stand up to pray evening prayers. And then another person has been working in the field the whole day and they both come into synagogue and they both, they both stand up to pray. And both of them are praying with the same intentions and everything. Yeah, the person who was working in the field all day, their prayers are a lot more, are a lot more powerful because it's all about the intention. It's all about what's going in. Um, they used to say that you can accomplish just as much by singing and dancing that you can by prayer and, they, and, and so on. So there's this uh, quote from Martin Buber that I really like that I think captures that a bit. The Hasidic teaching is the proclamation of rebirth. No renewal of Judaism is possible. It does not bear in itself elements of Hasidism. And that is a, it holds up to history quite a bit if you want to think about it. Some of the earliest um, um, masculine enlightenment were people who were influenced by Hasidic Judaism. In the conservative movement, you got Abraham Joshua Heschel, literally his father was a Hasidic Rebbe. You got even people like Mordechai Kaplan who some people might consider the antithesis to like Hasidic mysticism, yet when you read his books, it's very obvious that he had influenced some Hasidic influences um, or obviously Jewish renewal. And you see it almost everywhere. So someone want to read source number 14. Teaching from Rabbi Yechiel Mikhail from Zlach Not important. It's Polish. It's fine. <laughs> it is known that when Isaac was born, he was born with the soul of a female. As it is written in Or HaChayim and through the Akedah, uh, he got a male soul that can influence, uh, meaning can impregnate, with that can understand why they are more fertile, more infertile humans than animals, even though that they both got the same blessing. Whatever, yeah, you can skip that part, yeah. But, but that, is, that is known according to the so the secret mysticism of reincarnation, that at times a female would be in a male body because in the reasons of Gilgal, reincarnation, uh, the soul of a female would come to be in a male. That is why it is said, it says by Isaac that Hashem answered to him 
and not to her, uh, Rebecca, because he needed divine help to be able to have kids. Again, before we lost track. Sorry. At times, a female would be in a male body. It's like mic drop, you know, quite literally. I also showed that text to my dad when I came out to him, which helped enough to push him through the wall and him to admit that trans people exist. Still wouldn't accept me, but he, still, he admitted that it exists, which is, I think, a very powerful text. And also, oh, I might have forgotten to mention that Rabbi Chimach Zlachiv, who is a Hasidic rabbi from the first generation of Hasidic rabbis, and he is my seven times great, 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 whatever, grandfather. Yes, go ahead. We've read a couple of texts to talk about soul of a male being in a female or re being reincarnated, soul of a male being reincarnated a female. We also had female into and male. female yeah. to male, as if there were one switch. In other words, as if the soul were X from the beginning, and now it's changing yeah. to Y. It seems to me, we skip earlier, how do you know which one it started? We don't know, and I think that's the point. And, and we skipped that part a bit from the text from the read that I had in the beginning, um, where they talk more about like, how one single soul could be made up for up, up to 600,000 sparks, and every spark could be different. Ultimately, the message what they're trying to say, again, the way I see it, is that you can't judge someone's soul based on the body that it's in. And stuff happen where a soul, and again, I personally replace soul with identity or some, what someone is internally, which the body that they have doesn't always add up. I don't want to focus on this more. We can. We can literally sit on each and every one of these stacks a whole two hours and never move forward. But the, the, let's put it this way. What I want you all to be able to do is next time anyone tries to argue anything about Judaism and gender, you know that they don't know what they're talking about. And also enough for us to take this and you can go online and learn a lot more about almost all of these. The next one is a very powerful um, poem. It's a 13th century text written by Rabbi Kleinimus Ben Kleinimus. Kleinimus Ben Kleinimus was, and I guess still is to some extent, one of the most canonized and sacred Jewish poets to have ever lived. Some of the, poet, the, some of the uh, poems that they wrote are part of the High Holidays Parade, including Ne'ilan Yom Kippur. Really someone whose, whose poetry has made it, so to speak. They publish a lot of books. One of them is called Evan Bochen, which is a weird, not weird necessarily, but different. It doesn't fit into any genre of most Jewish books. It's not, a, it's not about law. It's not a commentary on anything. It's not prayers. It's almost like a journal, a lot of random writings. And one of them is this poem. Does someone want to start reading source number 15 until you will see three dots and then you can stop the second time? Anyone? Go ahead in the back, yeah.
Thank you. Father in heaven, through the miracles of our ancestors with fire and water, you changed the fire of chalady so when I burn hot, you changed Dean in the womb of your mother to a girl, you changed the staff to a snake before a million eyes, you changed Moses' hand to leprous white and the sea to dry land. In the desert you turned rock to water, heart flint to a fountain. Who would then turn me from a man to a woman? Were I only to have merited this, being so graced by your goodness? What shall I say, why cry or be bitter, if my Father in heaven has decreed upon me and has made me with an immutable deformity? Then I do not wish to remove it. The sorrow of the impossible is a human pain that nothing will cure and for which no comfort can be found. So I will bear and suffer until I die and wither in the ground. Since I've learned from our tradition that we bless both the good and the bitter, I will bless in a voice hushed and weak. Blessed are you, God, who has not made me a woman. I, looks like I don't have to add anything to this. This is from the 13th century. Not influenced by the liberal media or by Hollywood. Not influenced by I don't know what. It's a reality that has been around forever. Would any of you say that, you that you're tolerant towards LGBT people? Raise your hand if you think you're tolerant towards LGBT people. I love you all. Great. I don't like tolerance. No, tolerance is for lactose or nuts or whatever it should be. Not people. People you don't tolerate, people you celebrate. And I think that is the most important next step that we have to take. So if any of you are coming tonight as well, I'm going to show a video of my personal celebration ceremony. But for now, I want to show you some texts that have taught me on how we can do that within Judaism. Because again, I will say that as many times needed. I am not into kirif. I'm not into proselytizing. I honestly couldn't care less of any of you keep full kosher or eat bacon every morning. If you fast on Yom Kippur or you eat a cheeseburger on Yom Kippur, I honestly couldn't care less. You do you. But one thing that I do very strongly believe is that Judaism has the ability to give us the opportunity to celebrate. The power of Jewish rituals is not just the fact that we have rituals for everything, like literally for something to do after you go to the bathroom. It's the recipe. It's the ability of a timeless recipe, so to speak, a timeless understanding that as times are changing, as humanity is changing, we have ways to look on that and through our tradition build our own rituals. And we can do that with everything. We can do that with coming out celebrations. What I personally did it was with celebrating coming out, celebrating transitioning with a name change and, and, and in general with coming out. And the reason why that is so important, because what we need to internalize as a community and as humans is that it's not enough 
to accept people and to welcome people. For God's sake, that's the bare minimum that you can do. You don't get a medal for not throwing out your kid because they came out. You don't get a medal for being nice to a trans person or to a person of a different sexual identity or of a different racial background. That is simply what you have to do. What the part where we get to shine is where we get to stand up and say, oh my God, this is who you are. This is amazing. We want to celebrate that. And this is what I did personally. And I want to show you some of the texts and some of the things that we did. I want to start with, you will understand the next text a bit better with that, the next few. So there's a book called Radical Judaism written by Robert R. Green. Some of you might know who he is. Um, he's the dean and founder of Hebrew College Rabbinical School. And these are just a few quotes thinking about what it means being and what God is. Being, or yud or God, underlines and unifies all there is. There is no ultimate duality here. There is no God and world, no God, world, and self. Only one being and its many faces. When I refer to God, I mean the inner force of existence itself, that of which, that of which one might say being is. I refer to it as the one because it's the single unify, unifying sub whatever that word means, of all that is. Being is one, and each person is God's unique image. This is going to make a lot more sense later, but ultimately what I'm trying to point to here is that being who we are means that the world, which is the sum total of being, is more complete. When someone comes out, whatever it is, their gender identity, their sexual identity or lack thereof on both, or whatever they're coming out that they prefer apple cake over strawberry cake, whatever it should be, being who you are means that the sum total of the universe is more complete because that it is what it is, it is being. It almost turns it into an obligation. It goes from, is it okay to be Jewish and come out, to is it okay to be Jewish and not come out? So I want to read this text in source number 17, which is an interview that I did with the Huffington Post right after I did my kind of bat mitzvah celebration ceremony. I wanted to show that if you claim that being trans is unacceptable in traditional Judaism, well, here is a community that is not just okay with accepting me as I am, but is celebrating with me, rejoicing with me. What I am hoping is that by sharing my story, others in the same situation will realize that you can have your name changed in a synagogue. Can skip the next paragraph. I managed to keep myself from crying during the ceremony, but I choked up at one part. It was a traditional blessing that meant, Blessed are you, O Lord, who has kept me awake, who has kept me alive, and brought me to this day. I'm grateful that I survived to this day. That was a point that was really important to me. If you come tonight, you will get to see a video of it. Again, I guess a second point to it. Creating a celebration is not just something that is okay. It is not just completing creation. It is not just being a better human, which make, makes a better universe by being who you are. It is also important. Because the more it is done, the more people feel more comfortable doing it. I want to say even something else. Each and every one of you, I asked you in the beginning why you were here. I got some answers, some not. 
But the reality is that by showing up here, you are already making an extremely strong statement. You are already showing to people that this is a reality, this is a possibility. Whatever it might be, any of you talking to someone else, oh, I went to this person who is quite weird, but she was arguing that Judaism and gender are just like best buddies. Or whatever it is that the, uh, Valley Beit Midrash will, will say in the future, oh, we had that event, and people will be like, oh, okay, so that is a cool place. This is something that we can go. It's extremely, extremely powerful. Now, the actual way I did my own um, celebration is I looked to several different things, traditional and non-traditional, and like more rituals that are out there, because I personally think ritual has a very powerful idea. So what we were doing, and you will see the video tonight, um, it was at a synagogue. There was one big aisle in the middle. I started out by standing at one end and walking through the aisle, seeing this as coming out of a narrow place, an exodus, which I'll explain in a, mi in, 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 a mid, in a minute, and showing myself to a community and showing everyone that you can do that. And as, we were, as I was walking down the aisle, so to speak, um, they were singing, which is uh, um, uh, Source 18. Please be revealed and spread the covering, beloved, upon me the shelter of your tranquility. Finally, the rabbi, they read this um, intention, which is Source 19. In our tradition, leaving Egypt wasn't an historical event alone. In our tradition, it was a personal and existential leaving as well. In every generation, a person must regard themselves as though they personally have gone out of Egypt. Whenever we leave a narrow place, a place of constriction, painful servitude, a place where we are not authentically who we are, that leap-taking, that transitioning is an exodus, a freedom walk. What do we do to celebrate the exodus? We have an eight-day holiday. So at least what we can do is looking at Judaism and realizing that coming out of the closet, in whichever way or form that is, I guess we got to create an A-Day celebration every time. That's actually a good idea. I already see the, already see the whole new industry of uh, week-long coming out ceremonies. Sorry, what? Which yeah. branch of Judaism was your coming out? This was at Romimu, which is a Jewish renewal synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But it's kind of like open to everyone and be welcome. If you're ever in Manhattan on a Friday night or Shabbat morning, you should come. Okay, now we literally have five minutes left. So I'm going to skip the last, the last uh, just going to read quickly through 22. The Jewish values and principles, which I regard as eternal, transcendent, and divinely ordained, do not condemn homosexuality. The Judaism I cherish and affirm teaches love of humanity, respect for the spark of divinity in every person, and the human right to live with dignity. The God I worship endorses loving, responsible, and committed human relationships, regardless of the sex or gender of the persons involved. We literally have five minutes left. You can take this with you, um, read the rest of the text. You have a link to buy my book, which is the most important thing to take away from here today. Um, are there any questions? We have not even, maybe five minutes. Yeah, do we have five minutes? Okay, great. Go ahead. Understand what my religion 
where I was never really taught about God, but the holiday I can now come to in a totally different way. And I'm so very grateful because I will share this with them. Thank you. And I've never heard anything like this before. I okay. didn't seek it out because I didn't know. It exists very, yeah. Thank you so much. And also, you can take this with you, and you will see it at the bottom, bottom, there's a link to Safari. Uh -huh. If you just go to that, just put in my name, Abby Stan, you will find about 40 of these search sheets. You can send a link to anyone who wants, um, who wants to see. They're all public, available to everyone. But thank you so much, yeah. Any other questions? Go ahead. And then we'll do in the back, yeah. I quote a lot from the Torah and that states that gender is fluid, let's say, easily. So what's your opinion now? Because what do you mean? it's not fluid now. Oh, and, and you mean in, in Orthodox Judaism it isn't. There was actually a, per, a text that I had for that. We, I skipped it. You know what? Let's read it, though, if you brought it up. Uh, source 23. I, I think what happened in very short in Judaism, in, in, in some form of Orthodox Judaism, is the spirit of the law is missing. So... Um, some of you, probably all of you know that there's something in the Torah about not eating meat and dairy, right? Okay. What the, what the Bible really says is don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. Literally, that's it. So there's actually, um, I said it yesterday, I'll say that again. I think it was really, there's an Israeli TV show called Hayyudim Ba'im. For anyone who speaks Hebrew, you have to watch it. It's on YouTube. I think some of it have English subtitles. The Jews are coming. It's really great. But there's this one scene. So really what the Torah has three different times. It says the same, exact same verse three times. Don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. And the rabbis say, oh, because it says it three times, it means one of them you're not allowed to um, eat meat and dairy. One of them you're not allowed to cook. You're not allowed to enjoy it. You're not allowed to even eat chicken and, and, and dairy. So there's this scene where God is, but it says three times. I think that's why it said it three times. So there's, they have the scene. God comes to Moses and says to Moses, to Moshe, Moshe, don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. Moshe's like, oh, I shouldn't eat meat and dairy. God is like, no, 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 don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. Oh, I shouldn't even enjoy meat and dairy. I shouldn't even enjoy like, no, 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 it's not what I, I was telling you, don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. I shouldn't even eat chicken in dairy. God is like, you know what, Moshe, you, you, you just do you, I don't know. The point of that being, we're missing the point sometimes. Because when you think about it, it's a very humane thing. It's something that happened a lot when people just had farms. And it was very normal. You had a goat. You probably also had a mother. And you used the milk of the mother. So they're like, be a normal, think a bit. In other words, it's forcing you to think for a second that these are living animals that have feelings. And don't be a bit humane. An early version of being vegetarian. Like, think about it for a second. And then throughout generations, people started focusing on the law too much. So this is a poem from Yehuda Michai, arguably one of, and one of my favorite Jewish poets that have ever lived. And it's a, kind of a love letter. I'll read to it quickly through it. From thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk, they made the many laws of kashrut. But the kid is forgotten, the milk is forgotten, and the mother is forgotten. And this way from I love you, we made all our life together, but I have not forgotten you as you were then. Point being, where are we today? Unfortunately, some societies have created a world where they are forgetting what is really behind so much of Judaism, so much of the laws. And Ultimately, that is the point where I find that Orthodox Judaism has more, or Orthodox Judaism has more in common with Mormons and with uh, Amish people and with Jehovah's Witness than they have with the rest of the Jewish community. It's, it's a sad reality. 
and we can talk more about it, but we kind of want to move on. But ultimately, I think that this is why I have that text. I think that captures that a bit, that sometimes we're missing. Sometimes people who think they're very religious are really missing the point. You had one in the back, yeah. So you've got me thinking about, you know, at the end of the day, we still talk about the feminine aspect and the masculine aspect, which still to me sounds very binary, and how we describe those various aspects and how, you know, you're having me think about the fact that, you know, I mean, I know we have aspects of both and ideally not. Um, so here's the thing where I would stop for a second. When people say ideally none, I do want to, I don't think there's anything wrong with being feminine or being masculine. That's not the point here. I think the part where it gets wrong is when you're trying to enforce that on other people. It's like, let's put it this way. There's nothing wrong with liking apples. There's nothing wrong with liking oranges. It starts being wrong when you start forcing other people to like apple and start forcing other people to like oranges or to start to say that humans are meant to like apples or humans are meant to like oranges. That's where you go, yeah. So I guess my question is at the end of the day, and I know we're all limited by language, you know, there's, we're still like prescribing when we're describing that feminine yeah. aspect and that masculine aspect and how much of that should I be even thinking about? Um, it still feels like it's You're right. what that looks like. You're 100% right. And I guess the corollary to that is, you know, you're having me think about how difficult it is to think about, you know, gender equality and, you know, quotas around genders if gender's not a thing. And what is that? So ultimately, I don't want anyone to think right now, I don't want to think about gender. That is like people say they're colorblind when it comes to race, which ultimately means you're super racist. Because it doesn't, we don't live in a society like that. Maybe, and we can talk, that's a whole separate conversation of an ideal of a society where gender doesn't matter. But we're not there yet. Right now, we have to, in, in, in Judaism, there's a concept called which is that when the Bible, so again, it talks about God and other things, it just uses a language that people understand. We, I think it's important to have idealists also, and it's important to have ideals. But at the end of the day, we got to work with what we have in society as a whole. Maybe we have this idea of a world where really, really it doesn't matter. But for usually someone who tells me right now that oh, gender totally doesn't matter to me, it usually means they're misogynistic, 90% of the time. Because we live in a society, in a reality, where it does matter. And therefore, our, our obligation is to work, work with what we have and move it forward. Does that make sense? OK. Um, do you have time for no more questions? One more question? Two more? One? I'm going to let you choose it so they're not angry at me. <laughs> Sorry, her fault. I don't know if this is a good last question. But no, everything is good. Should I, should I read that you identify as an atheist now? Here's what I, I hate it. Let me ask, let me ask you, define atheist. Well, um, a non-believer in God? Define God. <laughs> everything and nothing. <laughs> that I do believe in. So here's the thing. When I say atheism, and it's something that I do identify with at times, I specifically refer, refer to the standard, what I talk, monotheistic idea of what people see as God, or what I like to say, the boogeyman in the sky. Which some people believe in, and that's totally fine. When it comes to that, I don't think. The thing that I do relate to it, it's like Art Green's text captured as a lot, where there's no, the, the idea from a philosophical point of view, I'm a total atheist. Where in philosophy, there's, God and there's humanity, there's God and everything else, I don't believe in that. But then when you talk about it, what is 
at his essence, Judaism, specifically Hasidic and Kabbalistic Judaism of God, where God is just everything and nothing, because as we have discussed, when something is everything, it's also automatically nothing. That is something that I very strongly relate to. I don't like the word belief, personally. I, I like relate to. I also say sometimes that people ask me if I believe in God or Judaism, I say I believe in Judaism more than I believe in God, which is a, a, a separate conversation. But yeah, here's the thing. Yeah, I do, I do, in a philosophical sense, I do very strongly sometimes. Here's a, let's put it this way. Some people in my life think I'm the most atheistic and anti-religious person ever. Some people think I'm the most religious person out there. And I love that because neither one of these are accurate. It's always, it's always, yeah, standing in the middle. Sorry, we're out of time. Thank you all so much. Um, Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.